an obnoxious example of indirect propaganda in the news, and a new style of reporting that the mainstream media is trying to normalize. You're listening to the Propaganda Report's Drive Time at News Blast. I'm Brad Binkley. Indirect propaganda, it's a type of propaganda that when done well, it can go unnoticed by those who are being subjected to it. At the start of World War I, the United States was neutral, and most Americans that were polled wanted to stay that way. The British, however, well, they had different plans for us. They needed the U.S. not just to join the war, but to join it on their side. So they conducted a propaganda operation targeting certain Americans. This was carried out through their wartime propaganda bureau called the Wellington House. What they did was set up basically sleeper cells around the country where they sent well-known and admired writers in the literary world to the U.S. to cozy up to influential Americans in the world of academia, politics, and entertainment. The job of these British writers was to be a bug in the ear of these Americans, to make subtle assertions or comments about the war that portrayed the British favorably and their war efforts as moral. They would also do things like accidentally leaving letters from home or British newspaper clippings that the Wellington House sent them just laying around for their American friends to happen to find ones that portrayed atrocities being committed against the British, stuff like that, stuff that would leave a powerful impression on whoever it was that found it, with the goal of all of this being to create, with the propaganda literature, the propaganda literature, so pretentious, calls resonance. So resonance in that propaganda literature, that literature, is when the target of a propaganda campaign believes that the propagated idea spontaneously emerged from within them. When the reality is that it was actually planted inside them, basically, through manipulation propaganda tactics. Resonance happens when those targeted don't recognize the outside forces that have been working on them and manipulating them into coming to the conclusion that they have come to. And these British propaganda agents needed these influential Americans to conclude on their own, as if it were their own idea, that joining the war on the side of the British, fighting and dying next to them, was the only choice that America had. Because then, they would become evangelists for that position. Unknowing mouthpieces for British propaganda. When someone thinks an idea is their own, and they have developed a strong belief in the rightness and necessity of that idea, they don't have to be told to go out and spread the message. They will just do it. And for some of these poor fools, their life's mission will become spreading this message. Because they think it's their own little brilliant idea. They don't even know they got conned. And this is why the British during World War I targeted those Americans in academia, politics, and entertainment. This is where the most influential people who had the most reach were. And it was certainly interesting that they targeted our celebrities, so to speak, with their celebrities. Their celebrities were the propaganda agents. Interesting wrinkle. More on that a little bit later. And judging from the letters sent back and forth between Sir Gilbert Parker, who was the British agent in charge of the operation here in America, and Lord Northcliffe, the head of the British Propaganda Bureau, the Wellington House, this was a highly successful propaganda campaign. In the letters, Parker provided Northcliffe with status reports and updates, which sometimes consisted of Parker mocking how gullible the Americans they were targeting were and how easy it was to get close to them and manipulate them because, for one, the academics they were targeting were so arrogant that they'd refuse to ever believe that they could be manipulated, and two, 
all of these academics and other public figures they were targeting jumped at the chance to have a lord or a duke show up at one of their dinner parties so that they could show off how sophisticated they were to their friends. So here we have a situation where the unknowing targets of a propaganda campaign not only admired their would-be propagandist, they desired to be around them, to be seen with them, to be associated with them, to have them over to their house, to have conversation with them, to show them off. This is a situation set up for success that is reflected in the Parker and Northcliffe letters. Now, if you want to read some of this, there is it's a bunch of books as this stuff comes from. One in particular that comes to mind is called Getting Us Into War. It's written by a guy named Porter Sargent. About 750 pages, and it's packed full of great information. This guy used to expose lies, expose propaganda back in the day. So a lot of good stuff in there. But this stuff, I believe, is in the footnotes, if I recall correctly. So what the British were doing is exactly what we hear the World Economic Forum, the Chatham House, the Council on Foreign Relations, Brookings, all these other think tanks talk about doing now. Say that they're doing now and say that they want to do even more of now with even more specificity which is propagandize target groups through the mouths of influencers or celebrities who already have the trust of that group, even their admiration. Klaus Schwab would love it if they have the admiration of the targeted group. His dome would light up with glee. He'd be so happy because if they have that admiration like the British had of the American targets, then easy peasy on slipping that propaganda in. That's how that works. And we see examples of this all the time in the news. TikTokers getting invited to the White House, coming back, making videos where they're saying basically the same things that Biden says, except we can understand what they're saying. And they have it tweaked a little bit to appeal to their specific target demographic, their needs, their desires, their wants. We see it when celebrities tweet something political that's representing a point of view, and it's going to be likely to influence those who admire that celebrity, who just wish to be around them. We see it when a celebrity might make a video about a specific issue that they at least pretend to care about. Maybe some of them actually do. I don't know. We see it when you get a knock at your door and you open it and standing there on the other side is Stacey Abrams and Oprah asking you if you've been registered to vote. And they have a clipboard in their hands and they say, we can sign you up right here. You don't have to exert any effort. Just let me put my hand on top of yours and scribble a name down. Come on, Stacey's going to throw you over her shoulder and we're going to walk you down to the precinct and slouch you over the computer and move your arms around and vote for you. You don't have to do anything. It's so super easy and you get to hang out with Oprah. And finally, we see it when Dr. Fauci goes to the Bronx and knocks on people's doors, allegedly. He probably knocked on one door. They filmed it. Then he went home and tries to get that person to go get a vaccine. Hey, it's Dr. Fauci here. You want to go down the street? We'll go get you a vaccine. Where you going? Door slam. I'm Dr. Fauci. I always narrate when a door slams in my face. You better open back up, pal. I'm going to put you down for a J&J shot. Ugh, I sure could use a cereal bowl full of cigarettes right about now. So those are all real examples of this type of British propaganda that we're talking about in World War I just being modernized and used today for a variety of different things. And the Dr. Fauci one was real. He did go to the Bronx, at least in a photo op. I doubt he went to a whole bunch of doors. And he did knock on a door and encourage people to get the vaccine and tell them where they could go to get it. Now, I don't think that effort by Fauci was very successful because they did hype it up only to not really ever mention it again after it happened. But can you imagine Fauci going up to a door of the wrong guy? Obviously, they would control it, control the photo op. 
But can you imagine if Fauci did actually happen to knock on the wrong door in the Bronx, some giant vaccine skeptic were to answer, knock, knock. Oh, hey, big fella. Time to go get the jab. Oh, nose punch. Nobody punches Dr. Fauci and gets away with it. Quarantine this man immediately. And then make his family disappear. So those are obviously the more direct, stupid, in-your-face, over-the-top propaganda techniques, tactics, whatever. There's a story that's getting reported on an obnoxious amount in the news today, yesterday, the past three days or so, actually, that uses this celebrity approach, but it does it in a slightly different way, in a more indirect way. Now, the message that they're propagating doesn't bother me. I don't care. What bothers me is that it's pretty obvious that a lie is being told. In my opinion, we'll see what you guys think as part of the story. For the sake of pushing this agenda, that's what ticks me off when they make up fake stories, when they blatantly lie to people to push their agendas and then act like the lie is justified because their agenda is so moral, based on their morals, not yours or anybody else's. Their morals, yours don't matter. They don't care about yours. When they have to lie to get their point across, it makes you distrust them. And they wonder about the trust problem. Stop lying and then telling people it's okay to lie. It's unbelievable. Okay, so I have a handful of stories that fall under these themes that I'll be going through throughout the week. The one I want to talk about right now is a story that the media has been obsessed with this week. They cannot stop reporting on it. They are giddy with excitement. They can't contain themselves as they're reporting on it. It's a very important story for our time, a story that will likely be remembered throughout all of history, A story that broke over the weekend, and that is that it's finally happened. After waiting 20 years, Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez have gotten married. It's true. I know you're in disbelief right now. I know you're excited. If you're driving, I probably should have told you to pull off to the side of the road and brace for what you were about to hear. But this is 100% real. Benifer got hitched. Sad Batman finally tied the knot with Selena. In America, well, it's got the royal couple it's always deserved. What a glorious day. Okay, so if you're anything like me, then you don't give a rat's backside about Ben Affleck or J-Lo and their relationship. You don't care. I don't care. I think it's a stupid story. I don't believe half of it, but that is why I'm interested in it, because I don't believe half of it. And I'm interested in the cultural propaganda they use these celebrities to push, to slip things in. And this is just a good example of, I think, a more indirect way. And it's going to be obvious to you guys, okay? You guys see this stuff. But they apply this type of stuff in a variety of different ways. Here's the story. After first getting engaged 20 years ago, then subsequently sleeping with lots of other people, Ben Affleck and J-Lo eventually found each other again. And over the weekend, they hopped a flight to Vegas where they finally got married They eloped in a small ceremony at one of those walk-up Elvis-themed chapels where you typically see drunk strangers whose benders have intertwined getting married right after they've gotten tattoos of each other's names on each other's shoulders. That's where they got married. And as for the honeymoon, I'm not quite sure where they spent that. Probably inside a dumpster behind a seedy hotel. That's my best guess anyway. Could be anywhere, really. I want to stop right here real quick and point out that 20 years ago, when Benifer first got engaged when they first made that promise to give themselves to each other. Shortly thereafter, they gave the world a gift as well. 
They gave the world Geely, the worst movie of all time. Now, 20 years later, that they have gone through with their promise, they have kept it, and they have officially given themselves to each other, oh, what gift might they give the world now? Perhaps a sequel. Perhaps Geely 2, which I think would be fitting because this whole thing already feels like a sequel. Feels like a reboot, except they kept the same actors from 20 years ago. I want Geely 2, and I want it now. Okay, so that's what's going on on the surface. But I ask you, what's really going on here? Besides the sequel to the worst film of all time, why are they beating us over the head with this story for like three days straight at this point? I mean, it's horrible. It's torture. It's so bad that to make myself feel better, I'm considering watching Geely for 24 hours. Why are they exposing people to this story? What's the point? Is it a distraction? Probably. There's probably some of that there. I mean, some Americans do love their royalty, just like the Brits do. And they love getting consumed by whatever these people are doing. So, yeah, there's definitely probably an element of distraction going on there. I think there's some other stuff going on there, too, especially tactic-wise, worth looking at. After the wedding, J-Lo detailed an account of her and Ben's big day in her newsletter. This according to TMZ. Here's part of what she said in that newsletter. See if you can spot it. Spot the agenda, the technique, whatever else. Last night, we flew to Vegas, stood in line for a license with four other couples, all making the same journey to the wedding capital of the world. Behind us, two men held hands and held each other. In front of us, a young couple who made the three-hour drive from Victorville on their daughter's second birthday, all of us wanting the same thing, for our world to recognize us as partners and to declare our love to the world through the ancient and nearly universal symbol of marriage. Okay, that was a nice, heartwarming letter. I don't believe a word of it. I don't. I don't believe for a second that Selena and Sad Batman here spent part of an evening over the weekend standing in the middle of Las Vegas, surrounded by intoxicated people, waiting in line to get a marriage license, in the middle of the night, with four other couples, one couple which happens to be gay, Another is from Victorville, two parents who either brought their two-year-old child with them to Las Vegas to get married on the kid's birthday, or they left the kid at home away from them and they abandoned their kid on the kid's birthday to come get married on that day. Either way, they have ruined that kid's birthday for life. Who does that? Who gets married on their child's birthday? Hey kid, don't have time to celebrate your birthday this year. It's mommy and daddy's anniversary. Oh, and they also happen to have no security with them at all. None. Just in the middle of Vegas chilling. And the gay men behind them who were waiting to get married, where they were all just happily waiting together in the middle of the night. What are the odds on this? The odds, first of all, that anybody was in line with J-Lo and Ben Affleck, that they were in line at all, ever. That's pretty low to begin with. I don't think any of this happened. But the odds that a gay couple happens to be behind them in line ready to get married in Vegas in the middle of the night on the same day in the same week that all of these stories about post-road America and that the Supreme Court is going to target gay marriage next happens to be prominent in the news. I mean, this sounds a lot more like a 2022 midterm Democrat campaign election ad than it does reality. And both of these lines that she says in her newsletter are the type of talking points or messaging that we hear in association with what's going to happen next after Roe v. Wade. 
We just want to be recognized. We want the world to recognize us as partners. And then marriage is a universal symbol. It's an ancient universal symbol. It's not constructed now. It's not for one group or anything. And I'm not criticizing those talking points, by the way. I think anybody should be able to get married if they want to get married. I know part of the conversation will shift to states' rights versus federal rights. Unfortunately, whenever that conversation is had, one side just calls the other racist, and nobody ever has a real discussion about it. But like I said earlier, people should be able to get married if that's what they want to do. If they want to give control of their relationship over to the government they hate, they should be able to do that. Her position on gay marriage here isn't what bothers me. What bothers me is that she made up a bogus story to promote this agenda, which means you always have to kind of assume she might be lying to you for the purpose of pushing an agenda. And she's got a lot of other agendas that she pushes as well. She also used that indirect method of propaganda where she's not explicitly talking about politics. It's not like looking at a news show where you know it's politics, you know it's going to be political propaganda, you know what to expect. What she's doing is a little sneakier. She's delivering political propaganda to those who aren't expecting that or looking for it. And she's doing it under the guise of a personal story about what happened on her wedding night without ever directly addressing politics. You see, when people go to her page, they aren't looking for politics. They're looking for entertainment. They want to hear a story from J-Lo. They want to hear about her wedding day. Their heartstrings are ready to be pulled. They're ready to have a cry. Their mind is wide open. It is ready to receive. It is ready to feel. Their mind does not have its critical analysis, its little soldiers in the brain ready to analyze information that comes in, political information that comes in for deception. Those are asleep. Those guys aren't even in the picture right now when people are going to her page, which leaves them, any of them who trust her so much and admire her, very, very vulnerable to having manipulative information, indoctrination-type information put directly into their unconscious mind at will with no critical faculties analyzing it, but they're going straight in. This is why the British employed those admired writers, those well-known writers in the literary world, to come over to America and get close to the academics and the other elites in entertainment, education, politics, who already admired them. Because they knew that these Americans, that their critical faculties would be down, their guard would be let down, while these agents are programming them with information shaping their perception of reality and the choices they have within that reality and ultimately their outcome without them being aware of it at all. And we saw what happened with that outcome for people during World War I. A lot of people went to war, they came back, they learned of the lies and the deception, the fake stories, and they got upset. They were duped and they were mad about it and they became disillusioned. This is something that we are all vulnerable to with this technique of using these influencers and these indirect methods of propaganda. In those situations where we're not looking for it and our critical guard is not up, that's when we're most vulnerable, which is why I like to go through stories like this, even if they're a little bit dumb, stories that showcase the type of techniques that we might not see quite as often or they might not be as salient as the other more obvious blatant propaganda techniques. Now, I know this was pretty obvious to read through the messaging to what was really being said here and what was going on, but still... Most propaganda nowadays, everything is so political, so overt, so over the top, that the stuff that they really like to use, the stuff that is really effective, this indirect stuff, it can get overlooked. And yet, it's the most dangerous type of propaganda there is. And there ain't no escaping it. I mean, we all get duped sometimes. He who does not get duped is probably always being duped. It's like those professors who thought they were too smart to ever get duped, which is exactly why the Brits went after them first. 
But it does help. It helps me anyway to look at stories like this and look at the structure and the tactics, how they use it, and then apply that same type of thinking to other stories to draw out those indirect methods. Sometimes they're obvious. Sometimes they're very obvious, but sometimes they're not so obvious. And it's really kind of cool when you are able to kind of pluck something out that maybe you didn't see the first pass you took of the story. It's like solving a puzzle, figuring out the trick, the indirect trick. That's the challenging one to figure out. And when I'm trying to figure out the trick, I also like to look at the person performing the trick or who appears to be performing it anyway. Maybe they're a puppet. Someone else is pulling the strings. But man, some of these people sure do fall in line and consistently deliver similar types of propaganda messages on varying scales at different venues to different audiences. JLo is, in fact, a seasoned propaganda agent. Just about a month ago or so, she was in the news for about a week after she used a gender-neutral pronoun to call her 14-year-old trans kid out onto the stage during a concert where they then sang a super weird song together. Now, obviously, the media marveled over this. They loved it. They were over the moon about it. To them, J-Lo is the best transparent that ever lived, that ever will live, and all other transparents can only hope to one day be a fraction of the transparent that J-Lo is. And that's not all she's been involved in. Back in 2017, she asked pop culture stars to write love letters to the LGBTQ community, which, by the way, and I've talked about this before, but it just seems to me like LGBTQ plus and all that is insulting to people who might be members of that group. Or maybe others say they're members of that group, but maybe they don't want to associate it with it anymore because of the way it's been politicized and used. I mean, it just seems like you're classifying a bunch of different types of people as exactly the same, that they have one opinion, there's nothing different about them, there's nothing individual or unique. They are just one voice, and they share the same beliefs, and they live harmoniously and love each other, and there's no conflict in between them. I'm not buying that. I would find that insulting. Maybe I'm wrong. But here's what I think is going to happen next with this story. I think that J-Lo and Aflac are going to go around the morning talk show circuit together, showing off their wedding rings, telling the story about that night that they got married and what happened. And they'll spend a lot of time during those conversations talking about those four couples and that experience waiting in line with them and what they learned from each other and what they hope for. And political themes will emerge, and this will end up being ultimately a messaging campaign for whatever issues are going to be pushing with that. That on the surface appears to be them just going around telling all these hosts about their wedding day. And there's even still another angle that has emerged from the reporting on this idiotic story. Slate Magazine has a proposal for the newlyweds. To their surprise, the surprise of Slate, J-Lo appears to have taken Ben's last name. Yes, she signed off her newsletter as Miss Jennifer Lynn Affleck. Something Slate called retro, despite the fact that in the United States, around 70% of women still take their husband's name. Slate said that they obviously don't expect her to use his name professionally, even if she did take it legally, but they don't like this move either way. Their argument is that she's too accomplished to take any man's name, especially this bum. She's more accomplished and more successful than him. He's an alcoholic. She's way too good for him. He's a loser. She shouldn't be taking this idiot's name. What Slate suggests instead that they should have done is that Ben, being the lesser, should have taken her name. It should have been Ben Lopez. Multiple outlets are saying, why isn't it Ben Lopez? He's obviously the beta here. And then they go on to make just a really, really horrific suggestion in the article. Here's what they say. And I know that you will know what the horrific suggestion is when you hear it. The first time the two were together, it was suggested that Affleck felt emasculated 
by all the attention their relationship was getting. To embrace life as Ben Lopez, wife guy, as he's already started to do publicly, would be a powerful way to signal to the world that the new Mr. Lopez was secure enough not to worry about such things. He could take a page out of second gentleman Douglas Imhoff's playbook and very publicly commit to taking a backseat to her. He would instantly be the most enlightened guy at any Duncan. That is literally the worst suggestion that anybody has ever given another human being. That is awful. No man should ever take a page out of the second gentleman's playbook. It's the worst playbook that there is. There's, there's not a worse playbook than Douglas Imhoff's playbook, or whatever his name is. I mean, the way that they portray this guy, the perception they've created around him is one of a weak, subservient husband who bows down to everything Kamala says, who is a beta cuck, an absolute beta cuck. There's no denying that in the way that they portray him. They make him come off as the type of guy who you think sleeps in a dog crate with a ball gag in his mouth and probably gets walked around on a leash by Kamala. He gives off the vibes of somebody who has a closet full of furry costumes. Anyway, I wish them well, Benifer. I do. I give it two years, tops, which is actually why I can appreciate that they eloped instead of having a big wedding where they invited all of their friends and family. I mean, that's always awkward. When someone has a big, huge wedding, invites everyone, all the gifts, the food, the dancing, the party, the money their parents spent, only to get divorced like a year later. This is why we need to normalize objecting at weddings. Everybody's been to a wedding where you've been like, are they really doing this? This is not going to last. And then it didn't last. Everybody in the room knew it wouldn't last, except the two people who were up there. Maybe they did as well, but nobody said anything. You're not doing them any favors if you don't say anything, but nobody can say anything because everybody will look at you like you're the jerk. Even if they know you're right, they'll still pretend that you're the jerk, even though you said what all of them were thinking. You need like an anonymous button Maybe you can vote on it. Everybody pushes a button. Do you object? Yes, no, I don't care, indifferent. And then whatever the percentage is, they, they get that information, they see it, and then they can decide or however it works after an objection. People need anonymity here. And they will object if they have it. And we will save a lot of ruined marriages. We will save people a lot of money. There needs to be some sort of refund. Okay, if you get objected to, bam, you get like 50, 70% off, whatever. We can really save people a lot of heartache by normalizing this practice of objecting when it's obvious that a couple shouldn't be getting married. We've all seen it. I also believe that people shouldn't be having wedding receptions, celebrations, on their wedding day right after they get married. There's nothing to celebrate yet. You haven't done anything. Anybody, literally anyone, can get married. It's not a unique accomplishment or an achievement. There's nothing to celebrate. It's not warranted. In fact, with roughly half of all marriages in the U.S. ending in a divorce or separation, this according to 2022 data, it seems kind of foolish to have a celebratory reception after the wedding, as half the couples who do this would be celebrating what would ultimately prove to be one of the worst and most financially devastating decisions of their lives. That's nothing to do a chicken dance over. All weddings should end with everyone who attended, walking one by one by the bride and groom, calmly, shaking their hands while cautiously wishing them good luck. Good luck. Uh. Then, if they're still together after 15 years, then you can have a blowout wedding reception because that's something worthy of celebration right there. That's an accomplishment. Not everyone could do that. 
That's definitely worth doing a chicken dance for. All right. So look out for that indirect approach to propaganda in the news. The tactic of using indirect propaganda. Look through that surface level stuff and see what is there that is a little more subtle, a little more deceptive. Because I think sometimes they're intentionally distracting us with the over the top stuff. So see what you notice. Tweet it at me. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. See what you discover. See what you find. It could be kind of fun finding it. Like I said, it could be like a puzzle. You know, it could be fun. We could all do it ourselves when we watch the news. And then we could report back to each other via Twitter or whatever. You know, like an army of actual fact checkers, you know. I look forward to seeing what you guys discover. All right. Thank you all for listening. And the DMBXR today, the exclusive content, we're going to be talking about a very controversial story that is on everybody's minds right now. And we're going to be talking about it in the context of this new no questions asked standard of journalism that the media is promoting. And we're going to show you two more local news organizations that are controlled from the top and are actually the main sources of the most controversial story going on in the news right now. And if you want to get access to that content, you can go to patreon.com slash propaganda report and subscribe there. All right. Thank you again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Have a fantastic rest of your day.